Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. It's just cover to cover full of funk goodness. Makes a great gift, too. Whether you're watching on our video format on YouTube or at funkinstuff.net or listening to the audio version uh, through the podcast on iTunes and other leading providers, I thank you so very much for your continued interest and support. Speaking of which, subscribe if you haven't already done so. Subscribe to the Funkinstuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes and thrives and uh, show us the support that we need and uh, that you love the artists, the funk, R&B, and jazz artists that are featured on this program. Thank you so much for that continued support. This episode features an original member of the terrific 1980s funk soul band, The Reddings, singer-drummer, keyboardist, composer, Mark Lockett. Having already notched a disco era hit under his own name in the late 1970s, Lockett joined forces with the teenage sons, a soul legend, Otis Redding Jr. They were a bassist singer, Dexter Redding, and his younger brother, guitarist, Otis Redding III. The trio exploded onto the scene in 1980 with their debut album, The Awakening, which included the smash R&B hit single, Remote Control, along with the thunderous instrumental title track. The group would go on to release six albums with the final one dropping in 1988. Notable and hit songs from that period included Class is What You Got, Main Nerve, Hurt So Bad, Love Dance, You're the One, I Know You Got Another, The Remake, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, Back to Basics, Hand Dance, Who Do You Think You're Messing With, In My Pants and the Ballad, Where Did Our Love Go, both of which uh, had the involvement of cameos, Larry Blackman and Charlie Singleton. So it's got that flavor. Also So In Love With You, and their final sizable hit, Call The Law. Although they notched five top 40 R&B singles, their albums and tracks are much stronger than that would indicate, as after their debut album, The Reddings did not really get the promotional push of which they were so deserving. Funk fans in particular will find much to latch on to, as Dexter Redding's prominent bass plucking was a consistent element throughout their catalog. The group toured with most of the top funk and R&B acts of that period, including Rick James and Ashford and Simpson, and band members collaborated in the studio with fellow funketeers like Tyrone Brunson. The fierce bass drum attack of The Awakening captured the attention of Primus bass virtuoso Les Claypool, who adopted it as a live showcase and also re-recorded the cut. While the Reddings essentially retired from commercial music making, Lockett went on to work with a variety of bands and musicians has remained active to this day. In this in-depth interview, he reveals the full writing story, why he has forever been driven to prove himself, his love for the stage and performing, his subsequent projects up to present day, and why funk has always been a way of life for him. So don't touch that remote control, as truth and rhythm has lock it in the socket, so get ready to rock it, and I always keep it in the pocket. <laughs>
Here's Mark Lockett. Is indeed a delight. Welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership. Lead singer, drummer, and keyboard player Mark Lockett, an original member of the 1980s funk band The Reddings. Mark, how are you, man? Good to see you. Man, good to be seen. I'm cool, man. I'm really good. Blessed to still be around, you know. I'm really good. I'm excited to talk to you. Excellent. So where are you coming to us from today? Macon, Georgia, where soul lives. Yeah, the Godfather. Yeah. Come on, man. Richard <laughs> Penniman, Otis Redding. Yeah. Allman Brothers. You know, we can go. We can go to the Reddings, you know, and we can go. Yeah. So I'm here. I, I moved back to Macon maybe about a year ago. From I was in Florida for about 27 years. I've been in South Florida since the Reddings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I went down there and um and never mentioned that I played with the Reddings or anything. And I just got into the music scene and did a couple of rock bands. I did something some different things, you know, some rock funk stuff. And um I just kinda wanted to do some different stuff, explore and and um it was really good for me. And I moved back home about a year ago. Okay. Yeah. Well well, you know, as I, I told you, I'm a huge fan, been a fan since that first record, The Awakening, and, um, you. you know, personally a fan as a funketeer, but also I was a disc jockey, so, you know, I snuck it in there wherever I could and tried to promote and, and help the cause, and, um, you know, you came out strong, and we'll get to that in a few minutes and talk about that first record, okay. but came out of the gate, boom, and, uh, you know, kept that funk going for a number of years, so looking forward to... Uh, you know, going back and, and picking your memories on that a little bit today. Sure. I'll, I'll give you what I can. When I, give, I have a selective memory, but I'll, I'll give you what I got. Excellent. <laughs> so, um, Mark, you're from Macon originally? Yes, sir. Why don't go you tell us, a little bit, tell us a little bit about, you know, your childhood and how you first got into music? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in Macon, Georgia. Uh, my father was a musician. And I was very young. And uh, before I even took an interest in music, um, I saw him doing it. My entire family in the church, everybody sings, everybody plays. So I come from a musical family, but I got into it kind of late. You know, I never did the church thing. But around uh, 15, I started to do talent shows. My mother, my mother brought brought home Say It Loud and Black and Proud when we were really young. First final we ever, I ever had. That's, and she brought that home and the sound of that record just fused my entire, I have two younger sisters. All of us are functified from that one record. That 145 she brought home, um, I've had, I, 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 ever since, I, I, don't, I don't know what happened to me, man, but that record fused me. And um, so I grew up with the funk in my spirit. My father played. He never got a chance to go as far as he wanted to go with it. But I kind of just took it on at a young age. And um, I would like I would see local bands around. And um, my mother wouldn't let me play in bands until I finished high school. So when I got a chance to do that, I put together like a 10-piece funk section. I was young and all the uh, cats older than me. There was funky bands in making, I mean. 
these dudes were killing it, man. I was always going to the shows, just peeking in. I'd go to the clubs. I wasn't old enough to get in and peek through the windows, you know, all the funk bands coming through making. It was just awesome. So when I finally got a chance to do it, I put together a band. My uncle came. I'm running through some things, you know, not really going all the way back into it. But um, my uncle came and saw what I had put together from Philadelphia. He said, uh, when you finish high school, uh, when your mom allows you, I'll come and get you and take you to Philly. I want you to come up there and see what, see if you really got it. Kept his promise. About a year later, came back, said, you ready? I said, man, I don't want to leave my guys, though, man. I just put this thing together. We hopped out here in these streets. You know, we made a name for ourselves. And um, he said, they can come, too. He brought all of us to Philadelphia. Unbelievable. Flew us all up there. Took me to Sigma Sound Studios, first studio I've ever walked in in my life. I, I got me a recording deal on RCA Records just off of his name, I guess, and, and his connections, because I hadn't done anything. So it was all amazing. It was like, you're signed to RCA Records now. You're going to work with T.G. Conway and Alan Felder. They wrote Disco Inferno. Well, they produced Disco Inferno. I go, okay. And uh, so they recorded, my first record was on RCA. It's called Boogie Fund, F-U-N-D. And it's a takeoff from Disco Inferno. If you play it, it's uh, the intro is the exact song. And it goes off into a different lyric and uh, different melody. But the music, exact. I don't know why, but it's exact. You, If you play it, you'll go, wow. But it was a it was a great breakout record from him. It was a big disco song overseas, you know, still getting some play over there. So it was a great song for me to break out locally. That's how eyes got put on me locally at home. The record was released all over. So I had a little local buzz going from that. And um, so I stayed in Philadelphia maybe about four years, three years. The record fizzled out and um, the whole thing fizzled out. Um, and I eventually had to move back. To so that record came out like 78, is that about? Yeah. That's correct, exactly. And um, that was my first situation. I never did, I didn't get a chance to, you know, that didn't make me smart or anything. It was just an opportunity, you know what I mean? It was just, I didn't, I, didn't, I was just in a whirlwind. I had no idea where I was at Sigma Sounds until I, it was all over and I went, did my research and the history of Sigma Sounds and everybody that walked through those walls, it blew me away. I, you know, still today, it's like, man, it was incredible, you know, the way that happened. And all that history was there. I had no clue. It just thrusted me into a situation. It was wonderful. It worked for me wonderfully because when I moved back to Macon, this is when um, I had my buzz in the streets. I was on the radio, and I'm still regular. Zelma. Zelma had the hottest club here in Macon. Zelma Redding, Otis's wife. Otis Redding's wife. She had a hot club here in Macon. So I used to freak up the club. But my name was in the streets. And she heard about me, obviously. And she sent, if I'm if I'm correct, she sent someone to find me. She wanted to meet me. And um, she was trying to put together a group with her sons. This was what I was told. So she wanted to talk to you. So I'm okay. No, 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 no harm there. I went and out, went down to the club. And, and there was Otis. At about 12 years old, there was Dexter at about 
15. And I was maybe 20 at the time. I'm a little bit older than them. I'm, yeah, I'm a little bit older than they are. And uh, I walked in and met them. You know, they were jamming in the club in the back, you know, and just had the equipment set up. Nothing crazy at all. So it was Dexter Otis and John Morgan. And John Morgan, when Jane Brown calls out Morgan on drums, that John Morgan. John Morgan had retired from James. He's from Bacon. He was working in the club. So he was playing drums for Dexter and Otis up in the back of the club, just working them out, just popping chops and stuff, and you're working them out. They were just learning how to play, really. And uh, he was the first drummer that we had. He sat through the little beginning of us getting there. So anyway, we talked. And I went up and played some keys, you know. I had just started playing boards, wasn't really that good, but just always can get in the pocket with whatever I touch, you know. I, I taught myself instruments, so it was just a, it just gelled, you know. We kind of didn't know what we were doing, but we were like, okay, okay, let's do this. They liked me, I liked them. Man, I'll tell you, it was about six months after woodshedding, then playing some little gigs in the club. She would let us kind of play on a Thursday night called in Russell Timmons from CBS Records. Russell flew down to Macon. He had been with CBS for 20 years, I believe. A&R guy, smart man. Came down, met us. I believe in six, seven months or less, we were signed to CBS Records. We were signed, we were signed to Believe in a Dream, which is his label. Believe in a Dream Records is the, the label, is Russell Timmons' label, associated label. And he was, we were distributed by CBS. So he put that deal together for us and we were off to the races with a record contract. What, what, what were you playing, you know, what tracks were you playing that got you signed basically that impressed him? None. None. We had no music yet. We were just playing in the back of the club, just working out, just playing together, you know. And then we, we eventually got inside the club playing every Thursday night, I believe it was. And just, we really were just playing cover tunes, you know. And he just, I think he saw something in us, you know, he had to. Along with his, his, his pull that he had, he pulled off a situation for us, you know. I don't know if it had to do with the, you know, um, the, the attachment to the legacy of Otis that was enticing, you know, that they signed us or whatever, but whatever, however he made that deal work, they got assigned. It got assigned. We were good. We were, we were very energetic and very enthusiastic and very naive also, right? Me anyway. And, and they had to be also. And um, for me, it was a great opportunity for me to um, showcase my vocals. I wasn't really a good player at that time, you know. I was still just learning instruments and whatever. But vocally, I guess I stood out, and that's how I became the, the main vocalist for the band once we got in the studio. But we had no music prior. We had no original songs. I think it was just a situation where he saw something that he could put together that he felt was, you know, 
with that legacy, that great giant legacy on us, we were naive to what we were getting into with all of that upon us. You know what I mean? It's like three young guys. We didn't know, you know, I wasn't really um, putting together how big of a situation this is. You know what I'm talking about? That legacy trying to be a. a Oh, I'm sorry. Lost you there for I'm a second. Is there a way to turn that off? Oh, you, did a call come in? Yeah, but I declined it instantly. Yeah, yeah. If calls come in, they'll knock you off uh, for a moment. There's a way yeah, to. Yeah, uh, there's a way to say "do not disturb" uh, on the phone, but not everybody knows how to set that up. Yeah. Okay, I, and I think that was just someone trying to sell me something. Anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll edit that. I'll edit that out. <clears throat> All right. Okay. Um, again, we had no material. And I think it was, um, I don't really know what he did, how he got that deal. We had a deal. We had a deal. We're off to Washington, D.C. Sounds like 70, 79, Mark? 80, 80, yeah. Yeah, 80 maybe. Because I think the first record was 81, 80, 81, 82. Awakening. Yeah. Um, so we go to Washington, D.C. We move in with him, become his, like his sons, move into his house. And he had a studio built downtown Washington, D.C. for us. The offices were there, everything. So every day on the, am I skipping something? And we go from the club, from making, getting signed, no music, record deal, move to D.C. But I wanted to just um, be clear, those cover songs you were doing, were they mostly like James Brown? Were they popular songs in the city? I remember Holland Oaks. You know, I remember, of course, we did Otis. And we still do Otis right now. I mean, that's always in the repertoire. Um, just the popular stuff, the funk stuff, the Midnight Star, the, the uh, mass production, you know, Firecracker. And that's one footnote, Firecracker is the reason I play keyboards. That solo in there, that clavinet solo in Firecracker, yeah. that's what that goes on. That sparked me. To, I learned that solo, and I've been funky ever since <laughs> on the key. It, it drove me insane. I didn't know what that was. And when I learned that, I've been, I've been playing ever since. I said, if I get this, I can do anything. Anyway, footnote. Um, and... Um, I got lost. So uh, Dexter Dexter was a heck of a bass player right from the get-go, right? Yeah, Dexter was plucking when I met him. Yeah, in the Olympic bass, he was a Stanley Clark. Stanley Clark was all he cared about, you know, so he was really into the plucking, 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 plucking thing from, from day one. And um, he's got those strong, big hands, man. So he was young. He was, like, amazing. I'm like, what are you doing? And um, Otis is the only one that really had formal music training. He was younger, so he took some guitar lessons. You know, and he plays left-handed, upside down. So we were some, we were some freaky dudes, you know. But we were still naive to what we were, what we were about to embark on. And once we got there, is when I think it was when we got to DC and we saw everything. The studio was there for us. He had everything laid out. It became real, you know. But Otis was young. He was still in school. 
you know, he was still in school. So he was going to military academy up there and we take him to school, go to the studio, Dexter and I, with an a house engineer. And uh, we work all day and pick him up after school and bring him down and continue work day and night, day and night until we finish that first album. Nothing else. No, no, nothing. No going to the, nothing. It was just like that every single day. It was military style. And this is how we became really good. So some places uh, say that you're uh, a cousin. Is that not true? It's not, not true. Uh, we have no lineage that way. It's, it's, it's a Hollywood thing, you know. Yeah. Once you get out there and it's, once it's pinned on you, it's, it's, you rock with it. It's like, you know, it's like my dudes I grew up with. They're my brothers, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, you can't. We, we have no bloodline. So that's the first time that's been said. But yeah, I'm family. We're family. We're family. Yeah, for sure. But um, we get to D.C., everything's laid out. And every single day is routine. They're putting us with writers. They're bringing in some writers to work with us. We we had some ideas, you know, but nothing solid. Just had a bunch of loops and things we were jamming on, ideas we had. I think we had some completed ideas because we just we just wrote and wrote and wrote at home every day. They brought in some guys from D.C., guys that wrote remote control. And when I think about it, most of the songs are still original ones that we wrote during that process. We were in the studio every single day writing. And they were bringing in some writers. But ultimately, we wrote most of all of our songs. Yeah, I'm looking at the credits. So your name is on all but two of the songs. Out of eight albums, every one of them, yes. Every one of them. So I want to... I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of that. <laughs> hey, yeah, you should be. I want to uh, remind viewers and listeners that, you know, that first record, 19... 80 uh, had remote control which was a huge hit and um the title track was just a killer instrumental drum bass groove um and for me some other highlights on that record um funkin on the one self-explanatory with that title i think uh you know. coming out of the rain to me was sort of like a kind of a barquet's like ballad um, yeah, and tap um, into that kind of naturally. That sound, yeah. And it's Friday night was um, a little cool in the gang ish kind of thing going on on that. I, I thought it is what was happening at the time sonically. You know what I mean? Those were the bands that we were we were trying to mirror uh, to some degree, not copycatting anyone, but that was the music. And so we were just really trying to find our way in there because. Those were the big boys. We had a lot to prove. Getting in the funk game, we we came in without something without a title on us. We were just the, the Reddings. Well, who are these kids? These are Otis's kids. Ah, they get a, they get a pass. No, we don't get no pass. We can play with you. We can stand up and we can go and do shows with you. We made ourselves that good because we knew we had to prove ourselves to be good musicians and good writers because it was you know you know just being with the namesake 
you get a pass, they think, everybody thinks. So we really had a lot of proving to do. We had a big, it was, it was immense, but we had no idea. We were just too naive to even care, really. We were like, hey, man, we play with anybody. So that was our attitude about it. We never really flinched, man. We got in it. It was like Zelma was our manager. She was, you know, you're like, she's she, 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 she captain of the ship. You go do your job, and all I want to hear is hits. That's it. Understand what it is that you have embarked on. No plan. We won't hit records. It was like, okay. And that's all we that's all we focused on. Everything had to be hit, hit, hit. We turned in the song. Russell was right there every single day. So he was always in there. It was just really a wonderful start to a to an awesome, still awesome, awesome career for me. For us. Well, remote control got to number six on the R and B chart. Yeah. And yeah, um, did uh, did you guys go out on tour right away after that, or did you um, not go on tour until you had a couple of records done? Yeah, we had a couple of records done. Remote Control took off, and um, um, I think we dropped. Um, I want, baby, I want it. Maybe we want a ballad after that, or something like that. We did go to Europe. We did Europe a couple times. We did European tours. We did military bases. And we did some uh, uh, small arena stuff over there. Yeah, we went on the road. Did a lot of. We were over there more than we were over here. Did Did you open or share a bill with any in interesting acts uh, on that tour? The European tour. Yeah, the European leg. We were, we were headlining. It was just really us. Yeah, we were just. I don't even know, man. We got with a promoter. He put us over there, and we were just hitting it. We were killing it. We had no opener. When we came back to the States, yeah, we opened for everybody. Frankie Beverly and Mays. Rick James was our first big one. We actually came back to Maker. Our first show was, I believe, at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. That was our very first concert in the United States. And was, we opened for Teddy Pendergrass and Stephanie Mills. That was our launch off at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. It was amazing. No How, footage. We have no footage. That's, that's a no damn shame. So, so many great uh, shows from back then. No footage. No footage. And it was, and it was a two-night show, two nights in a row with them. It was amazing. And after that, we went out with Ashwin and Simpson, Frankie Beverly, the Gap Band, Rick James, my hero, one of my heroes. Everybody. That was funky at the time we we we, we toured we, we opened for did a lot of shows yeah so, how, 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 were you always comfortable on stage mark or did you kind of oh yes have to, oh, yeah. i'm a ham <laughs> i'm a ham that's me right there <laughs> i'm a ham brother that's my that's my comfort zone i'm i'm uncomfortable off stage ah. when i get on stage man it, it is it is the most wonderful thing in the world and I'm still doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I've always been a ham. Always been very confident. Even when I was young, when I was young, I wanted to have the best band in making. I came after the big boys. I would say, I'm coming for you. I'm not trying to be your friend out here. I'm coming for you. I've, I've always been that way. I'm still that way. Yeah. Yeah. I still think I'm, I'm, I'm that, I'm that dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes, 
So did that first album come out exactly as all of you had hoped it would, or was there anything that you kind of wish would have been different or it was all good or, or what? Um, I, I didn't think that, um, it, I didn't think that it, I had no expectations personally. I don't think any of us did. I think we were just always feeling lucky, you know, and we kind of caught up to the records and stuff. You know, because we were just really a little bit like, we were really kind of, when I keep saying naive, we were really naive to what how big this was. We were, we were so naive, it didn't, we had no fear. But when it took off, we had to catch up to it. We had to keep, and we had everything. We had, we had publicists, we had A&R people, we had wardrobe people. We were laid out, everything. Was, it was like walking into superstars. You know, it really was a fantasy for me. You know, it was like really incredible. Our clothes were designed. I mean, we would seamstress and all of a sudden, you know, I'm from the projects and make them George all the way. Then I'm all of a sudden I'm somebody and I'm in photo shoots and I'm getting my clothes like tailored to me. And I'm like wearing Living the I'm dream. I'm wearing six hundred dollar snake boots. You know, it's like, what the hell just happened? But it was wonderful. I was in it, man. I'm like, this is so great. But it was, we were quietly enjoying it. We were quietly enjoying it. We weren't rah rah enjoying it. I, I found it interesting that that first record didn't have you guys on the cover, though. Was yeah. that yeah. was that some yeah. kind of conscious uh, marketing decision, or why did they do that? Yeah, we didn't decide that. We didn't decide that. There was not a lot of. We had no input in that. That's why we we're on the back just posing. Yeah, that was just um, someone else, probably CBS, you know, in the in the art department or whatever came up with that. But the title of the song, jump, you know, sparked every every idea. So the awakening, we titled the instrumental, the awakening, and I guess that's what they they came up with. We had nothing to do with that. How much did the producer kind of guide the sound? Versus, you know, just what you guys came up with. Um, well, the sound of remote control was not ours. You know, that was um, a couple of writers. There's three guys from D.C. that wrote remote control, which was the first song that came out. Um, I didn't we didn't have a sound at that time. We were just always fusing the funk in everything. You know, it's, you can't deny Dexter's way he played. And it was always going to be on the one. And it was always going to be, we were, we, were, we, we, we were striving for some type of perfection that we didn't, we just knew it had to be sonically perfect sounding. That's the only knowledge we had of really making records at that time. We just knew we had to sound as good as everybody else. And we had to be in the pocket and we had to be, we could not be looked upon as giving a gift out here. We wanted we wanted you to know, you know, we played these instruments, we wrote these records, and so our sound just came from really Dexter's bass being always prevalent in everything, and and I guess my vocal style, you know, my vocal style was right there with everyone else. Um, I never really looked at it back then until now, like later when I listen back, I'm like, hell, this sounds like Bruno Mars. <laughs> You know, we already did this. Right. Yeah, well. When I heard it, I'm like, okay, maybe somebody's going to show up and open the gates again. <laughs> but well, then, you know, 
Who, Mark, who, who were like some of your biggest influences for singing at, back then? Uh, well, my pops, my old man, my brother, my older brother, rest in peace. Um, those are my, the first time I heard voices in the house or whatever, just really just belted out soul, soul singing. My brother and my father were soul singers. I sound like that now. I didn't sound like that back then, but now I sound more like them, more um, my, you hear my new stuff is very soulful, and my voice is not that kid anymore. So I'm a real soul singer now. But um, that was my first influence. Then James, of course, when I heard James, that that made me get through the screaming and then you know just wild and just ah. But nobody really like a pretty singer. I listened to a lot of women. My mother played a lot of Aretha, a lot of. Um, Dion Warwick. So I got a lot of my um, vocal, uh, a lot of their, the way they approach it from from females. You know, and then a lot of blues she played, B.B. King, Clarence Carter, Tyrone Davis, Johnny Taylor. That's my early food right there. You know, those, that's what really, really, I heard that stuff through the walls every night because my mother had parties at home all the time. So music was always playing in the house. So it's Al Green, all that soul stuff, Otis, um, yeah, Wilson Pickett, all the soul stuff, all of it. But James set it off early and then all the soul stuff. That's what she, that's all we heard. So those are my early influences. And I believe Earth, Wind and & Fire and the Eisner Brothers were my early, early ones that I just, didn't leave the room anymore with the headphones on when that stuff came. That was like, okay, what just happened? Because that was different than what I was, what I was growing up on when they came. Now we got the horns blazing, and now we got the costumes, and we got the. I was mesmerized by the Isaac Brothers and how they dressed. I, I'm, I, my closet is full of that type of stuff, man. I, I just. You can't see it. Yeah, I have one of their album covers over there. Oh, man. Them and Earth, Wind & Fire just drove me insane when I saw that. Showdown's over there. But I think um, all of it, Marvin Gaye, you know, all of that music, Isaac Hayes. My brother was a big Isaac Hayes fan. And my cousin turned me on to the life-changing as a musician, Stevie Wonder. My cousin turned me on to Songs in the Key of Life. And that was I've been done since, man. So those are the ones, you know, that's the food I ate. I love the blues. I'm writing blues, some blues stuff now. It's some, some more Southern soul stuff right now. I've been really just entrenched in for the last year. That's you, Mark, you mentioned uh, when you were young, you know, seeing like a lot of people playing locally and stuff like that. Yeah. Was there any like big names that you saw at that time that you remember? No, I didn't get a chance to see a lot of them. I would go out to this club we had here and make a call, the Adams Lounge. They would bring in a lot of funk bands from the South and around Florida, I guess they would come from. There's Lattimore coming up here, but I was too young to go see them. But I would drive out my, I would, I would actually steal my mom's car, sneak out the window, steal the car, and drive all the way to Adams Lounge to look over the windowsill and listen. They eventually let me come in and sit on the side where you can eat. I couldn't go in the, 
he would let he would go come in young man you can sit in this side and just listen but you can't go in the club so, but i never could go to shows you know i didn't have that type of access or money or whatever never swung out of shows man just i listened to a lot of music did your mom ever catch on to that yeah oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> but <laughs> yeah but that i mean she realized that he really loved this stuff he's you know he she supported me. That was my biggest fan. Rest in peace. Yeah. Once she realized I was going to do it, and I actually was kind of good at it. She supported it, you know. But stealing the car, I just got in trouble with doing that stuff. I wasn't always stealing it for that. <laughs> to get around. <laughs> you know, yeah. when, when you guys when you guys came out there with the Reddings. It was at an interesting time in music because disco was dying and the 80s was moving in. Um, you guys kind of avoided getting stuck in that disco trap, I'll call it, you know, because a lot of black acts especially got sort of trapped by disco. You know, they felt like the label pushed them into doing it or whatever, and then they had a hard time transitioning out of that. Yeah. Um, so you guys are, I think, fortunate that you didn't get pulled into that at that time. We were right on the tail end of it because Boogie Fun, the record I did for RCA, is a disco record. That is a disco record, so I did that, and uh, that's all I did. It had a B side to it, but yeah, so we escaped that just by it. You know, things just changed, and we had nothing to do with it. When we came in, we would have been too young anyway. I think things just worked out, man. We were really, really young, really young. So we lucked out, and the funk was just waiting. <laughs> what what did uh so when you went in to do that second record how did you want to how did you guys want to change things or what did you want to do differently or accomplish well i i'm gonna pull them out here I, I class was the second one class yep yeah well which um that track the title song is possibly my favorite Reddings track. Class? Yeah, that one is seriously that that should have been a bigger hit in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, um, for whatever reason that didn't happen, but I do agree with it. It was a good song. But um this this showcased a lot we were getting a little we were getting a lot better at writing and and um, constructing songs. But with this album we had the confidence now and um we just kind of had, we, we've always been just very confident that, you know, we really don't care about what you think. We had a little chip because everybody thought we were privileged a little bit, you know what I'm saying? At least I, in my mind, I don't, I don't know if they thought that way, but I was always thinking that, you know, we really got, we can really got to prove ourselves all the time. Mm -hmm. We got to prove we're not a fluke. We got to prove we're not just been handed this gift. You know what I mean? The record deal, and no, we really can play. We really can write, you know. And so, and just, we just had a lot of pressure on us to be to be good from Russell and Zell, you know. And, and and we just that's the pressure we felt. It was internal. It was really not the industry or the bands or the other groups. It was really them pushing us to be understanding what it is we stood for and what we had on our backs, you know. We, we you got to be great. So I think this. That second album, just we were just getting more mature and more confident. 
Well, I, I think it definitely is a stronger album than the first one. I mean, you guys really yeah. definitely progressed and stepped it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The feeling I processed the first one was, you know, and a lot of guessing game going on in that first one. But <laughs> the second one, I think we were like, we can do this. Yeah. We were lucky. We had our own studio. We didn't have to pay to go in it. You know, we didn't have to wait for anyone to give us studio time. It was 24-7. Our thing. The only group. You know, it was exclusive to us with a house engineer. That's how we did what we did. That's a nice luxury right there. That is a luxury. Yeah, I mean, I know it was, I know it was a luxury. It was a, it was a luxury. So that's how we became really good. I'll mention a few other tracks on there that I, I appreciate. Uh, Main Nerve was a real nice mellow instrumental. Um, the one Kevin played on. Kevin Tony did the solo on that. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were talking uh, before we came on air for uh, viewers and listeners, uh, Kevin Tony of the Blackbirds, who uh, was on a previous yeah, episode yeah. of Truth and Rhythm. So he's on That's that Main right. Nerve cut. Um, yeah. You're the only one. Was a that one to me kind of sounded a little bit Jackson Five ish. Jackson's kind of like influence on that one. Um, Hurt so bad, real cool mid tempo, bass still funking it up though. And um, Love Dance too was a real up tempo dance music. I love that song. That's one of my greatest vocal performances as a young man. I love that song, Love Dance. We didn't write that one. That was my favorite one, so. And, um, but we have, yeah, I love that song, Love Dance. That should have been a big record. Could have been a big record, I put it that way. Yeah, yeah for, whatever, for whatever reason, I mean, I don't know if the label wasn't uh, doing what it needed to do on the single part of it, but, um, yeah, it should have been more Better hits off that record because it's a strong, strong album. Well, the only thing I can think is that, um, you know, we were over there with Michael Jackson. We were at CBS with Off the Wall was going down, and Luther Vandross was over there, and and Jermaine Stewart was around, and the system around, and they were at CBS, but those were the hot groups. But um, we were over there with Michael and Luther, Change. So we kind of probably got lost in the sauce with all of that, those heavyweights being there. You know what I mean? By the time it got down to us, it's probably like, okay, okay. We got Michael, we got Luther, we got this and that. So we we had our run. We, you know, we were in there, but I don't know if anyone was pitching to higher up the totem pole like, with any urgency you know that's I just still feel like it was that everybody had that privilege thing in their head you know these kids are just they just get you know, just they're just here but uh, we were better than that so I think that may have had that played into it with having that that heavy roster you need to go back and look at who was on that roster when we were there it was, you know it's hard to put us in front of any of those guys just default <laughs> you know yeah they had too much uh good stuff on on that list. Had, yeah at that time it was heavy it was heavy we were 
it was unbelievable how we would get a budget every time and be like, we, you guys got another budget for another album. You know, we did six of these bad boys. That's, that's a lot of records. And then that second one, class, nice cover shot of the three of you guys. Yeah. Uh, looking dapper. Yeah, always, man. <laughs> that's, that's definitely part of it, you know. Yeah, we had the best everything coming at us, man. They were giving us everything we needed to to be sharp and be good. Best of everything. Really. Did, did they try, since those guys were so young, the Reddings, did they – try it all to position them as sort of like teen idol type of guys, you know, pitching them to the, the, the girls that way. No, we never had a pitch like that. We were more or less pitching uh, our musical prowess that we could play with the big boys. You know, it wasn't about teeny bopping. We were like, we want to start with the big guys, you know, and we started messing around. We started playing, opening for Rick and Frankie Beverly and, the gap band, you couldn't tell us we couldn't play with the big boys anymore. You know, Rick James told me we were good. Rick James told me I had it. Rick James told me, don't, don't stop, you got that thing. These were words to me personally, you know, hanging out backstage, taking us under his wing, you know, like, you know, I, I hung out with him, you know, because I was older and I was more interested in really how this thing goes, you know, I mean, this rock star thing, you know, I don't want that. So after that, that's when I got the dreads going, Rick. So we just had a bunch of people around us giving us the confidence. You know, the Isley Brothers, we would have lunch with the Isley Brothers sometimes, sitting out with Russell at the table with the Isley Brothers, with Birdine, Earth, Wind & Fire. We were, we were in, we were in some, in some, uh, some situations where it was just like you could just sit there with your mouth open, you know. I'm like burning the person away from me, even in LA. Like, Come on, man, you know, and giving us game and and saying I heard the music, man. I mean, that's I mean, that's what do you what else do you need, for, you know, to, to you know to be fueled and to have that, you know. You walk away from there, me personally walking away from that table, going, hey, bro. I'm one of the boys. You know, we doing this for real. Yeah. Did, did did you do a um a show at that point or around that time, like back in Macon, where you got to kind of have a homecoming? Mm -hmm. We did. We, we came home with Rick James. We yeah, that must have been incredible. My mom was there. My friends were there. Amazing. I don't remember anything, but they tell me <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they tell me all the time, man. You really. Everything you spoke, you came out and did on that stage that night. So it was, yeah. Yes, we did have that homecoming. 